Well, enough pleasantries. Let's talk about politics. I love the political season. I'm sad it's over. Some of you are like, it's just beginning. No, it's over. It's done. The, the election is over. But one of the things I love about elections, I've only been through a couple of them. I'm a little younger than some of y'all. And uh, one of the things I love about them, though, is watching the way that candidates go about crafting their message to see if they can garner national support. So Hillary Clinton, she uh, had the slogan this year of, um, oh, okay, the one Hillary Clinton supporter, uh, sorry, Ben. <laughs> ben Fraley on Facebook is facebook.com slash Ben Fraley, I'm with her. Um, I'm just kidding. Can I do this? It's getting too political. I'm sorry. I really am apologizing. Uh, so, so yeah, no one actually knows Hillary Clinton's thing. That's, that's the point, though. And then Donald Trump's was what? Okay, make America great again. Right there, I would just say is the difference between the election. The ability to craft a clear, understandable message. And it got me under, like, thinking about past elections and like some of the slogans that have come out. And Obama had hope and change in 2008 and then forward in 2012. And just these strong uh, political slogans that helped us understand like, what it was that we were shooting for. And so it got me thinking. I'm, I'm a little weird in the way that I like history. And so I started me thinking, like, what's the history of the political slogan? And so I started digging, and once you know, there are web pages and books written on the exact subject. And I, I found that it goes back to the 1840s. You didn't know this was coming today when you came to church, did you? You're like, let's go hear about political slogans. The 1840s was a big time in American history, um, and so 1844, James K. Polk, you all know James Polk, right? Uh, he, he's running for office, and the big topic of that day was nothing like what we're talking about today. The big topic was that the British owned Oregon. And we don't like that. We want Oregon. We're, we're kind of power hungry, money, you know, land hungry, and we want Oregon. And so the parallels, the 54th and 40th parallels mark the boundaries of Oregon. If you know your parallels, you know that actually is a larger territory than just what's little Oregon today. And for us, we're like, Oregon, who cares? <laughs> like, like, you can have Oregon. Like, we'll keep Washington and Amazon, but you can have Oregon. That's fine. But it was a big deal back then, and James K. Polk's slogan, his whole bedrock of his, uh, his campaign was, 5440 or fight! I was like, reading that, I was like, that's my kind of president right there. I can get behind that. That's fantastic. His challenger, Henry Clay, uh, is a guy who is the titan Henry Clay. He, he was up against Polk, and he thought, well, he's got a slogan. I should come up with a slogan, too. And his slogan, I kid you not, is this, who's James K. Polk? And today we say, who's Henry Clay? <laughs> uh, fast forward 40 years, and uh, you get to the election of Grover Cleveland, 1884. And um, Grover Cleveland, it was uh, long rumored that he had a devious past. And so um, one of the rumors out there was that he had actually, uh, you know, had a child out of wedlock. And to make sure that everyone would know his atrocities, his challenger, uh, James G. Blaine, went ahead and made his own slogan for this campaign. And, and I, I'm going to say this slowly. This is James Blaine's slogan. I say it slowly because the comedy is just rich and the parody between their two slogans is childish. Here's what James Blaine's slogan was. He said, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. In retaliation, Grover Cleveland 
picked up the same cantor of the slogan and said this. He said, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. All that to say, politics in America has always been a work in progress. Unless you think that this past election was as bad as it's ever been, maybe the best thing we need to do is just to keep improving. Amen? One thing, though, that, um, that caught my attention, caught everyone's attention this year was the Make America Great Again slogan. And if we can be really honest, it's a lame slogan. It's a really lame slogan. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, the hat, the red hat, did not add to the cool factor. It actually probably took away. And uh, yet, Make America Great Again appeals to the heart of all of us because deep inside of who we are as people, we desire greatness. Isn't that true? Like how many people, put your politics aside for a minute, this is not a political question, this is just a human question. How many people want to live in a great country? Right? Amen. How many people want to attend a great church? Yeah. Uh, How many of you want to have a great business? Yeah. How many of you, let me ask you this, you want to have a great marriage? And and how many of us, we would want to have a great family? Yeah, yeah, we all would. Why? Because greatness is an internal longing of our soul. It's it's deep inside of us. And and here's why. Because greatness is not perfection, but it's pretty much as close as a human can come. Greatness is, it's six championships in eight years. Greatness is the most Oscars out of any living actress. Greatness is that song, um, White Christmas. Am I right? That song's pretty great. Top, te- top, top selling Christmas song of all time for seven decades. Greatness. As best and as paramount as it possibly can be. But, but here's, the, here's the deal. I wonder if you were to look at the foundation and the current status of your home today, if you might feel like your family is not great. Our families today are in trouble. Do I sound like Trump a little bit? I'm sorry, parsing that out. But our families today are not great. Many people get married at the altar with ecstasy and high on the emotions of love. And they go off and maybe they have kids or they start their career or or life starts to happen. And this this euphoria in this relationship starts so strong. And then as life goes on, it begins to wane by the distractions of the world. And they settle into this sort of normalcy. And before you know it, normalcy leads to not thriving but just getting by, just surviving, just making it to the next day, just hoping that I can get through this, just hoping that we can turn the corner. At some point, it's going to get better. At some point, it's going to get better. But the whole while, just giving in to the spiral of despair. And I would argue that you and I don't want to have mediocre families. We want to have great families because that's a God-given desire birthed inside of us. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. I, I, I want you to know that Jesus wants your life and your family to be great and he has a plan for you to do it. And Jesus is going to teach us what true greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And today I want you to think about it as it pertains particularly to our families. So whether you're a son, daughter, father, mother, aunt, uncle, husband, wife, whatever you are in your family, I want you to know that Jesus is about to unleash on us his plan for how to make your family great again. How to make your family great again. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Are you all with me? 
Yet it goes better when you talk. Are you with me? Amen. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. We'll stop right there. That is one way to make your family great. Just go find some aspiring political leader, get in on the ground floor before the revolution, find someone who's going to take on a country and just say, hey, here's my son, here's my, my, my son, I, I'm, I'm happy to be here because you're going to start something that's going to need an administration and a cabinet and something, and I'm happy to be here to, uh, to serve. And, and actually, I'd, I'd, like to have, I'd like to have this type of treatment. And there's a lot to admire here in this approach by James and John's mother. For one thing, mama's shameless. I want my boys to have this treatment. I'm going to go right to the top to get it done. What a power play with some significant upsides. I mean, we can all agree that there's some significant upsides. If Jesus says yes, that's amazing. First of all, the Zebedee name is honored. That's a big deal. She'd have two sons in positions where she can feel good about them as a mother. And third, she would have the confidence and security of the new administration knowing that they will protect her in the future from the Romans if ever they try to regain power. We can all acknowledge it's a bold move being just so blunt with Jesus, but if it works, then great! James and John, you guys are great! And yet, here's the problem. The kingdom of God was not going to be set up with an earthly throne and a capital and a cabinet. There was no transition team needed to usher in the kingdom of God. It was going to simply supersede, go over the top of the invisible structures and authorities of this world and bring with it the peace of God, which is better than the peace of Rome. And this mother was motivated by her flesh, motivated by what she knew of the world's structures and systems, not what she knew about what Jesus' real spiritual mission was. And verse 22 makes that very clear. Read with me. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, James and John, said to him, we are able. Everybody say, come on. Right, right. Like this is that moment in class where the teacher asks a question that kind of sounds like a trick question. And all of you, like you're sitting around, this is me in, in, in school, I learned that if it sounds like a trick question, it probably is a trick question. So don't say anything. But there's always one kid in the classroom, right? There's always one who will pipe up and give an opinion or say, oh, obviously, yes, we can. And, and uh, James and John, that's, they're, they're our kid today. They're, they're that one today. Very interesting what they're saying. Can you drink the cup? They say, I am. It's, it's a way of saying, we think we have what it takes, Jesus, just like you have what it takes. You see, the cup that Jesus is referring to when he says, are you able to drink this cup? It's more than just, can you walk the walk? Can you stand in my shoes? Can you do my job? Do you have the skill set? When Jesus says, are you able to drink this cup? This is an Old Testament allusion. This was a way of referencing back to what was understood in the Old Testament as the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on the world. For Jesus to say, I'm going to die and be buried and be resurrected, that comes immediately before Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And then to say, are you able to drink my cup? 
he's clearly referencing his death, his burial, his resurrection, and absorbing the wrath of God for an entirety of humanity. So James and John, do you think you can do that? And they say, yes. See, to insinuate, though, that you can atone for your own sins is absolute foolishness. And so notice Jesus' reply in verse 23, how compassionate Jesus is. He says to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, he records for us in Luke chapter 12 that James did drink this cup as he records that he was speared to death by King Herod, dying in a very similar way that Jesus would have. And John, tradition tells us, was burned or boiled alive and then left to die, deserted on an island. You will drink my cup. But regarding the position of authority, this is not something Jesus can just hand out. It's something that's earned or, or obtained another way. And all along this conversation taking place with this mother on her knees and her two sons kind of thinking too highly of themselves and Jesus trying to sort this all out, there are 10 other guys sitting in the background kind of kicking the dirt, kind of listening, listening in on one another. And notice what they say in verse 24. And notice this. Matthew records, he says, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were indignant I don't think they were upset at the gall of these guys. I think they had a tinge of disappointment that they themselves hadn't thought to ask Jesus that question. Kind of like when um, I learned about what Uber was, that like you can have an app that makes anyone around you a taxi driver and you could pay them less than you would for a cab and they'll drive you anywhere you want. I was like, why didn't I think of that? Come on, like, and I was so disappointed. Like, like why wouldn't, that's a million dollar idea. Anyone could have that idea. Why did I? And this is the situation that the disciples are in. Not, Angry at the gall of saying, how, how do you think you're so high? But, but, but I see Peter looking at his brother Andrew going, where were you on that one? Like we could, have, we could have locked that one up. Now we're looking at third or fourth place at best. I mean, that's like secretary of the interior. That's like a secretary of education. I don't really like those. I want, I want VP and secretary of state, man. And uh, there we see Levi probably going, that's a Roman thing to do. I could have thought about that, man. All of a sudden, what used to be a harmonious group of men uh, surrounding themselves on the mission of what Jesus was about to do, going to the cross, giving up his life, and then rising from the dead, all of a sudden, this one question turns itself on everyone in the group, and they start asking themselves, well, why can't I be, why can't I be at the right-hand place? Why, why can't that be me? And within this story lies the first reality of greatness, the first uh, enemy of greatness in God's kingdom. And we see it played out here in the disciples' group, but I see it played out in families time and time again, and I wonder if you do as well. It's this reality that competition breeds conflict. Competition breeds conflict. Who's the greatest? Who's the favorite? I want to be the best. And Maybe when you were kids, that was a thought that made you spar with your brothers and compete with your sisters over who was the smartest or the fastest or the strongest, right? That's healthy competition, which breeds healthy growth. But I've watched too many families where mom and dad die, and they leave their estate to the kids to split up, and 
All of a sudden, when you used to compete over who could get to the tree the fastest, now you're thinking who can get to the dining room table the fastest and who can get that thing that I love and who can take the house. And and all of a sudden, the talents come out in the family and competition breeds conflict. Like vultures descending upon the prey of their parents' possessions. This is unhealthy. Unhealthy competition is always based in pride and selfishness of the flesh. And here we see a prideful mom pushing forward her prideful sons, and it causes division and confusion and anger around Jesus' disciple group. And isn't it true in your family that one small act of prideful manipulation, one small shortcut to glory, it can be enough of a little tear in your family to rip the whole thing apart. Mom is jealous that dad is seen as the favorite parent by the kids, and so she starts competing with her spouse for attention of the kids. Or a sibling feels like mom and dad and everyone else likes everyone else in the family, but not them. They assume they've fallen out of love, so they shut down, and it causes conflict in the home. Competition breeds conflict. And our families, if they've been marked by conflict lately, I bet it's because at the core of something in your family is a selfish competitive spirit, a prideful competitive person. So I was thinking about this in my own life. Thinking about like, how does this competition and conflict, how has it played itself out in the life of Dan Jacobson? And uh, this past week, I, I spent some time thinking about the top five ways that we can manage healthy and unhealthy competition. Things that happen in our lives that have to take pl- place, that we have to hold intention, that we have to na- navigate somehow. But, but five areas of our life that if we don't keep a check on these, we can quickly introduce a tear into our family and all of a sudden we're down to mediocrity. And the, first, uh, the first marker, the first competition that I thought of was time. Time. How you compete with one another in your family over how you spend your time. And I'll be straight with you. Uh, when I was a kid, never struggled with this. When I was newly married to Kristen, never struggled with this. What do you want to do? Okay, great, let's go do it. That'd be great. I'm with you together. Then I had kids. And don't you know it? Kids have a way of rearranging your schedule. Have you noticed that, parents? Am I the only one? Okay, good. The nine o'clock was all the kid parents, and they were all like, yes. Yeah. Because uh, here's, here's, what, here's how my day goes. I, I come to work, and I work really hard, and I go home hopefully really spent because I've been working hard. And I um, enter through my garage. I go into my kitchen, and I always kind of have to take a breath before I get in the door because I know on the other side of that door is a screaming two-year-old boy who is going to wrap his arms around me and try and take me down. And it, trailing behind him is his three-year-old sister who has just made like the world the world's supply of crafts that day and wants to show me every single one of them. And I walk in, I'm surrounded by my kids, I can't take off my shoes, I just want to get in the door and my wife, who I love, she cooks for me, I love that, I can't cook, I would starve without her. She's trying to make dinner and she oftentimes will look at me and say, can you just get them out of my hair? Just get them downstairs, close the door, I don't care what you do with them, just get them out of here. And so um, I walk into the house and I often look at the, the, the house and something's broken. Like my kid, Miles, has broken something. Every day there's crayons somewhere or like a chair is broken or like there's just goo everywhere and I've got to fix that. Let alone, I, I, you guys won't judge me, right? I have things I want to do. Like 
Like, I'm taking my master's class. I'm getting my master's uh, over at Wheaton College. And, like, you don't just, like, show up and they give you a diploma. You got to do work. And then, like, I, I've got hobbies I really want to pay attention to. And, like, I think I deserve, like, 10 minutes. Just give me 10 minutes to just sit on my phone and check the news and see what Tiger Woods did or didn't do in golf that week. And I found myself so many times walking in and just being like, can you just give me 10 minutes? And all of a sudden, that's my time competition. Where I want it this way. Selfishly, this is my desire. And other things in the house have to happen. But this is my competition. This breeds my conflict. Are you with me? And so this is, this is just me being truly truthful to you. This is the thing I struggle with probably the most. Is that I want to spend my time my way. I think the second competition that we have is the competition over attention. Attention. And this is very similar to time. But attention is how you perceive others spend their time. And specifically, do they spend enough time on me? Dads, I encourage you to wrestle with yourself over how much attention you give your kids. I fear in my family, I fear in your family, that our kids know the back of our iPhones better than they know our faces. And moms, how much attention are you giving to your family? Or are you finding ways to escape and are you creating this competition where one, one another, we, we need to see each other and, and, and learn to serve one another and to show attention for one another and yet um, you withhold. Guys, how many times are you here in your family? I just feel like you don't listen to me. I feel like you don't understand this. I feel like you're not hearing me. Right? What is that but a competition for attention? To say, hey, something is happening in my life that I really need to share with you. And when we don't keep this in check in a healthy dynamic, when we become selfish and we turn it into an unhealthy dynamic, that quickly leads us down the road to conflict. And it will tear your family apart. Maybe not five minutes from now, but definitely five years from now. Number three is the, the competition of control. Would you play along with me? Um, I, I grew up, my family had a station wagon, and it was the days of, like, cassette tapes and radio. And um, do you remember, like, taking road trips with your family? And what was the one thing every kid wanted was to control the radio, right? You ever said in your family, like, I want to pick the station. I want to pick the CD. I want to pick the music. I want to, right? Really cute when you're a kid, right? I want to pick the movie. I want to eat at that place, and it's kind of great. But then, then you grow up. And if this is the thing that becomes unhealthy in your life, you start saying things like, I want to spend Christmas with my family, and, and I want a vacation on that side of the country, and I want to spend our savings on this thing that only I'm going to use. Then you start battling for control, getting your hands on it, seeing, seeing your spouse or your kids or your, your parents as not an, uh, someone to live with, but an object to overcome. And trying to manipulate yourself and selfishly position yourself and your family to say, no, 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 I want things done my way. And if I can get them to see it my way, then I'll be able to do it. And decision making and the like, they're all part of life. But isn't it true that for some of us, the biggest internal battle you face is the desire to maintain control. And if someone else makes a decision that you disagree with in your family, you'll start meddling in a way that you really don't need to meddle. And you begin competing for control, and in the process, you're undermining everything. This is the situation of James and John in Matthew chapter 20. They're competing for control with the disciples. Let's gain power. Let's ask Jesus for more. 
Am I, am I hitting anybody here? Is, is, this, is, this, is, this, is this us, right? This is us. This is definitely me. I wonder if this is you too. Number four is affection. Affection. How do we compete with one another in our families? We, we, we compete for affection. One of the most normal elements of your relationship at home should be affection. It's a healthy part of a family to hug and to say, I love you and I'm proud of you. And sometimes, for whatever reason, we withhold affection from one another. Sometimes, and I think the majority of time, we don't do it maliciously. We don't even realize that we're doing it. I, um, I called a family member of mine the other day and I uh, was talking to them on the phone. And uh, we got to the end of the conversation and said, okay, love you, bye. And they said, thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay. And all of a sudden, um, it creates this unhealthy mode of giving and receiving affection. What it creates is a vacuum where you start to crave affection. And how many of us with siblings, we felt the rivalry that was created in our family when one parent would dote on one child more than the others? Affection is often an unnoticed area that we compete in and it leads us to conflict. And finally, this applause. Applause. What's, what's one of the biggest things that we compete in in our families? It's, it's applause. It's the desire to have approval, to be celebrated, to, to, have, to have the word said, you did a great job, said over us. And how many men would live their whole life thirsting for one moment where their dad said, good job? And how many husbands in this room for one moment, if their wife only said, hey, I'm proud of you, that would fill them up for a long time. Applause. It gets us to do things that we otherwise wouldn't have thought to do. When I was a kid, I uh, had no idea like, what clubs to join, what activities to do, and my sisters were in music. And so my parents celebrated music like crazy. That was where they got all their applause. Did you hear her play her flute? Did you hear her sing the song? Did you hear her play the piano? This is such amazing. And so I, I, I learned how to be musical because I was thirsting after the applause of my parents. And so wives, I said it earlier, but one of the, one of the greatest ways to bless your husband is to applaud him often. A man wants to feel respected and your applause, wives, goes a long way. And I think here's the issue. The issue is that, um, women, you don't think you need to applaud us for the things that we do because they're not that impressive. You're kind of like, you took out the garbage. I birthed three kids, so good job. But we're like kids. We want to hear that it's good. We want to hear that we're approved. We want to hear that it, you're proud. And so lower your standards, please. <laughs> We've already raised yours. You're heroes. We know that. And yet applause. Because if you do not get applause at home, you'll go try and find applause somewhere else. And that is not a healthy dynamic. That is not God's intention. That is the effects of sin on our hearts and our lives. But how true is it where we see in our society men more committed to the golf club than they are to their home. More men, men are more committed to the bowling league than they are to loving their families. And so some area where this is unhealthy, where we haven't given each other enough applause, where we haven't approved of one another enough, it leads us into this unhealthy competition and it leads us directly into conflict. 
And so you look at this list and you go, Dan, that's quite a list. Like I, I kind of feel in my soul like every single one of these describes me. So what are we to do to make sure that we keep these competitions in check? What are we to do to make sure that these don't veer into unhealthy territory, but we stay in healthy territory? I'm so glad you asked because that's exactly what Jesus says next. Isn't that amazing? Look with me in verse 25. Look at what Jesus says. He says, but Jesus called them to him. He, he notices what the disciples are arguing about. He notices like, that they're angry about this situation with James and John. And he's like, hey, hey, team meeting, family meeting. Let's get together, huddle up, take a knee. And this is what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus was probably sitting in, 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 in eyesight of a Roman flag with an eagle on it. He, he probably pointed right at the Romans saying, you know what it's like to live under the empire. You know that the ones who are in authority lord it over them. They exercise their authority. They become ruthless. And that's the way the world operates. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Second dynamic of, of families that we got to be aware of. If competition becoming unhealthy conflict is one of the dangers in our family, we got to see this as a reality towards greatness is that your posture, your posture determines your position. Your posture, it determines your position. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus says in the world, your position as the ruler is, is largely dictated by the posture that you take. Are you fit for office? Can you convince us that you're a leader? Can, can you do the right things and have the right resume? Can you lord it over people? Can, can, you, can you be someone who is a leader? And, and yet Jesus says it's not that way in the kingdom economy. Greatness is not measured by how high you get or how you lord it over others, but really truly about how selfless you become. I think if Jesus would have been saying this today, he would say, your politicians want to make your world great again by imposing their will over the country. But I tell you, your position is not determined by how domineering you can become, but by how selfless you can become. And your posture of selflessness determines your position of greatness. It's ironic how James and John's mother attempts this. She approaches Jesus and she gets on her knees and she begs Jesus, she, she literally goes to him and she takes the position, the text says it this way, she got on her knees as if to worship him and ask him for something. And at the core of her request, she takes, she takes the right posture of this, but at the core of her request is not sincere selflessness. Can we all agree on that? This is a request that is coming with the, the form of, of schmoozing the one who is in control for my own personal gain. And listen, you go to the right person on your knees in the right position to say, hey, I need this from you. And they may do it on earth, but in heaven, it doesn't work that way. God cuts through the outward sham of what you're trying to scam him with, and he sees into your heart, and he says, I see pride. I don't see greatness right here. I see manipulation. And your posture, it determines your position. In the kingdom of God, 
Greatness is, is truly about how much you can serve. Dads, I wonder what your attitude is. I wonder how you're running your home because the caricature that the world would impose on us as dads is, is kind of like this. Um, you are the king of your castle and you run your home like your little empire and your kids are your little subjects. You as the king, you're superior to everyone else. So you walk around your castle as the king and you bark out your orders and you recline on your couch as you assume your you assume by your position of control that you are a great dad. That is not the Jesus way. That's the world's twisted way. And moms, how's your attitude towards your kids? Are they blessings to train up and develop or are they just inconveniences to your life? Have you allowed your attitude to become arrogant towards them? Have you found yourself lashing out at them saying things like, I'm not just a cook, I'm not just a maid, I'm not just a chauffeur, I'm not just a checkbook. That's the world's posture and, and imagination of what a mom is. And husbands and wives, what is your attitude towards one another? Man, how dare you ever have the thought that you are superior to your wife as if that's what biblical submission was. And wives, how dare you if you ever thought that you were inferior to your husband because if that was what biblical submission was. What's your attitude like? Is it arrogant towards one another? Or is it the posture of what Jesus says as a servant? You know, I can't get past these words. The world shows us something and then Jesus clearly says, it shall not be so among you. Like, it shall not be so among you. And, and Doug, it shall not be so among you. And Brevin, it shall not be so among you. And, and David, it shall not be so among you. Right? I could go around this whole entire room and say, we understand, Mike, the systems of this world. It shall not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great must be what? What? A servant. And here we see so clearly Jesus giving us the key. You want to make your family great again. Here's the posture you have to take. It's that of one who is willing to wait tables. That's literally what the word means. It's to do the chores in the home of waiting tables, bringing food, acting as if you're in the backdrop of the, of the, of the scene and not necessarily the foreground. Be the one who's willing to say, not, not my intentions, not my way, but your way. To, to say, I'll take a step back so that you can take a step forward. Your posture determines your position. So better, dads, to serve your kids than to have your kids serve you. Better, moms, for you to model selflessness to your kids than self-centeredness. Better, husbands and wives, to model care and submission to one another than it is to show pride to one another. Better is it for us to ignore the lie that being a parent means you never have to say you're sorry or being a husband means you never have to say you're sorry. But in the kingdom, being dad means you're the first to say you're sorry. See, in Jesus' economy, it's the one who takes the posture of the least who are shown the greatest honor. And this totally reminds me of the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14. I won't have you flip there. I'll just put these, these verses on the screen. In another 
another parable, Jesus is explaining to his disciples how to handle themselves at a wedding reception. Apparently, this was a big problem back even in Jesus' day. You would go and you'd be like, I don't know where to sit. Where do I sit? I hope I don't sit at that table. Do I sit at this table? I don't know where to sit. There's a, if I sit too high, then I'm going to look like a jerk. If I sit too low, then... And this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says. He says, when you're invited to a wedding feast, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you want to make your family great again, it starts by you saying, I am going to serve selflessly. Bottom line, single truth, for me to help put my family back to where it should be by God's help, I'm going to serve one another. I'm going to serve selflessly. And I got to admit to you guys, I was, uh, you know, as a pastor, you know kind of like where you're going to go with the, with the passage a couple of days in advance of Sunday. And I've been studying this text and thinking about this text for many days. And I come home from uh, a day of kind of writing out notes on this. And um, in my family, I do the dishes my wife cooks. That's our deal. I like it. Otherwise, I would never eat. And um, I found myself this week, I kid you not, I was like, you know, scrubbing dishes and thinking like, yeah, to become great, you must be a servant. And then I started thinking about how awful my kids are. And like, there's sippy cups in my house everywhere. And like, what am I? Like the sippy cup pickup guy? Like my kids take a swig and they chuck it on the ground and they're like, I'm done, give me a different one. And so they go, they're like old enough now where they can go and like get the water and put the thing and like they take another sip and then, and I'm sitting there like fuming at my kids, this is a true story, fuming at my kids, scrubbing the dishes, going, I know what I'll do, I'll teach them a lesson, I'll take their sippy cups and I'll put them all in their room. I'll hang them upside down over their cribs and their beds so that they slowly drip on them overnight and that'll teach them. Treat me like the sippy cup guy. Come on. I'm a, don't they know who I am? Don't they know I'm their dad? Don't they know? <laughs> so many times I had to just say, laugh at myself and get, say, Jesus, you're working on my heart. Like, Jesus, you are shaping me into selflessness. Jesus, you're roughing off the rough edges. And, and Jesus, help me not think with a right-hand mentality that I am entitled and privileged. But you've called me to sacrifice and serve. And what a blessing it is for you to have that moment where that internal pride wells up and with the Spirit of God, you can crush it down and say, no, 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 to become great, I must serve and not be served. It means we have to serve selflessly. Your posture as a selfless servant is what Jesus says positions you as being great. How do you know if you're a servant? I don't remember who the pastor was that said this, but when asked that question, he simply responded and said, well, how do, peop- how do you respond when people treat you like a servant? How do you respond when you're treated like a servant? That's how you know whether or not you're truly a servant. I need to close this down, and I want to encourage you, so let's move to the last portion of this message. 
Because I can still hear someone saying the argument, but how, how can I serve selflessly? How, how can I actually do this? I think you got me. I think you, I understand. I think there's all this competition that I, I, I'm in. My heart is not postured. I got pride. But how do I actually do this? And I want to just notice Jesus' last words again. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you have your Bibles or you have a phone where you can highlight something, I want you to take a note on this. I want you to circle two words here. And it's okay to write in your Bible. That's all right. You know that, right? So, so circle the word slave. I want you to circle that word slave. Slave. We, we, we had just been told, like, if anyone wants to be great, you got to be a servant. you got to serve. But then Jesus immediately ups the ante on us. Like, he kind of throws his chips all in. He says, no, 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 not just serve. You have to become a slave. To be a slave in that day is very similar and horrific to what we experienced in our country, uh, thankfully, centuries ago, although still too recent all the more. To be a slave meant you had no rights of your own. Therefore, nothing that you did could be misinterpreted for selfish gain. Slaves owned nothing. They were at the mercy of their owners. They were disregarded in society. To be made a slave was to sacrifice everything and gain nothing. And to be sure, Jesus is not condoning the institution of slavery, but he's, he's using something shocking to get our attention. And I wonder, does Jesus have your attention? I think the point is this, it's that sacrifice, sacrifice gains you everything. Because in this day, not every servant was a slave. But in this day, every slave was a servant. And for you to say, I'm going to become a servant. No, 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 I'm actually going to become a slave. Volitionally, I'm going to make myself nothing. I'm going to give up my rights and not expect anything in return. That seems like the ultimate sacrifice that would gain you nothing. And to make this point super clear, Jesus gives himself as the example here. Notice what he says. He says, I didn't come to be served like a king would expect to be served. I'm not here for what I can get, but I'm actually here for what I can give, and what I'm going to give is my life. Why? Because in giving my life, I am acting as a ransom. That's the second word I want you to circle or highlight or take a note on in this scripture. Ransom. Circle that word ransom. Do you know who benefits from a ransom? The answer is the slaves. A ransom was a, a payment to a slave owner for the release of someone who was previously held in servitude and captivity. It was the way that you purchased their freedom, reinstated their value, their dignity, and their worth. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. We all owed a debt we could not pay for our sin and the wrongdoings in this life. And because of our debt, we are slaves to sin, unable to break free. We all, friends, needed someone to come along and pay our debt. We, we literally needed someone to ransom us for us. And that someone is Jesus. And he acts as the saving ransom for our lives as he died on the cross, his death acting as payment for our, our sins. Friends, his sacrifice is what gained us everything. I wonder if you've ever thought about it that way. To know that Jesus calls you to a life of sacrifice, but it is because he is our sacrifice. 
And his sacrifice is what gained him everything. Jesus was always the king. He was always uh, the creator. But through his death, his burial, and resurrection, he purchased for us, us, for himself, that he pulled us out of our bondage, out of our sin, and he bought us back from our death. Jesus gained everything on the cross by gaining us for himself. And so listen, it's because of that sacrifice of Jesus and his example as a servant that we can even say today that I will sacrifice my will and my rewards and my reputation for the sake of others. And I will consider myself a slave to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus redeems the slaves. He buys back from bondage. The way down feels like death, but truly, Jesus says, it's really the way to life. Some of us in this room are major problems in our family. What Jesus is calling you to today sounds outrageous and uncomfortable. You think you'll lose your comfort, your credibility, your voice, your freedom, your marriage, your authority if you sacrifice your rights and instead you choose to make yourself a slave, serving your family. But friends, look at me. You're not losing anything. Instead, you gain everything through sacrificing your life on the account of the gospel. Why? Because you're putting yourself in the path of God's mercy and grace. You're putting yourself in the path and a position to be redeemed by Jesus. You don't need to be afraid of the sacrifice that it may cost you. When you have Jesus, you have his buyback guarantee. And so sacrifice, giving up your rights, accepting him as your Lord and Savior, it doesn't cost you as much as it thinks it costs you because he gives it to you in another way, in an eternal way, in an eternally great way. And so that means for our families this. When we choose the unexpected route of serving others and putting each other's needs before our own, our families will only grow stronger and greater. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have a plan for us to follow. God, we're so duped by the world and yet you give us clarity to say the way up is actually down. The way to life is through your death. The way to glory is through suffering. And the way to greatness is through service. Father, I pray that this message would put in motion activities in our families that would help us serve one another greater. Father, forgive us for competing with one another, for allowing there to be a small tear in our families that leads to major conflict. We're grateful, God, that you've given us the, the secret, the roadmap to know that to, to fix our families firmly in the kingdom mentality means that we would serve one another. So God, help that start with us today in our families. Help husbands and wives serve one another. Help aunts and uncles serve their nieces and nephews. Help us as a church family to serve one another. All in your glory and in your name. We love you. Help us to do what we've heard. Amen.